As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father, your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We desire to keep your righteous rules, and so we ask you would give us life, O Lord, according to your word. Your testimonies are our heritage forever, for they are the joy of our hearts. And so, Father, by your Holy Spirit, open your word and incline our hearts to follow it forever, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would please turn with me in God's word to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We want to read just one of the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5, the great beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to read one verse to help us in our consideration of the Tenth Commandment and of sanctification together this evening. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament between Malachi, the last book of the Old, and Mark, the second book of the New. Um, It's on, I don't know what page it's on. I forgot to write it down. Uh, You'll have to find it yourself. Um, I often write it down here. I don't have it, so I can't help you. Uh, But we're just going to read the one verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Um, a well-known verse to many of us in all likelihood, uh, but a wonderful consideration of what we want to think about tonight in terms of our righteousness. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, We in the evening, as I said earlier, consider the Heidelberg Catechism and use its consideration of the, the whole doctrine that we need to understand as Christians as a kind of guide to make sure that we hit all the fundamentals, uh, ideally once a year, uh, that we hit all the fundamentals of the faith and think about these important things that we need to know. And whenever it comes to preaching Lord's Day 44, it presents something of a challenge for the preacher. You seminarians should think about that. Um, it it pre- presents a challenge because the first question really deals with the 10th commandment um, and what we confess about the 10th commandment and what we understand by it. And then the last two questions are really a reflection on our consideration of the law as a whole. Um, After spending so much time thinking about the law and thinking about what the law has to teach us, how how do we use it to our benefit? What is the profit of spending weeks studying uh, the Ten Commandments, or as we've taken an even slower approach, uh, what has been the the benefit of taking this time to really seriously and completely think about the Ten Commandments? And so we want to use our, our Lord's words here that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, as a kind of way of thinking about uh, this hunger and thirst that is created in God's people by His Spirit, and that hope that that hungering and thirsting will be satisfied. Um, one of the things that we've, we've said as we've gone along thinking about the law is that one of the things that impacts us about the law's requirements is that it touches on both our attitudes and our actions. Uh, the law would be difficult enough for us to keep if it had to do just with actions, just with the external things that we do. But as we've gone along, we've, we've seen that the law is also speaking to the attitudes of the heart. Um, and the Tenth Commandment is explicit about the attitudes of the heart. It's a commandment that touches on desire uh, more than anything else, where we are setting our hearts, right? The Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet, really is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, 
nor his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Uh, We think about that, that desire, that attitude of the heart, and then we think and meditate on how we are to respond to this law and how it's crucial for our Christian life to understand these things. I think when it comes to our sanctification as Christians, questions 114 and 115 are two of the most important things we can know for our own pursuit of the Christian life and also to help other Christians as they pursue the Christian life. Uh, These things are very important, very vital truths for us to understand. And so it's wonderful to be able to think about these things together this evening. So as we think about our text and we think about the exposition of the catechism, I want to think about uh, our heart for the Lord. Uh, Covenant really touches on the heart, so it teaches us about our heart for the Lord. And then we want to think about our health at present. Where is our spiritual health at present with the Lord? And then finally, we want to think about our hope for the future. And that's how I want to think about this, this text and this subject with you this evening. Our heart for the Lord, our health at present, and our hope for the future. Uh, coveting has to do with the heart, uh, where we have set our desires. Question 113 reminds us, what is God's will for you in the 10th commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. This is a commandment that expressly touches on the state of our hearts, where our hearts are setting our desires. It's a commandment that explicitly reminds us that God is just as concerned with our internal obedience and the state of our hearts as he is with the external obedience that we offer, that our affections have to be properly regulated towards our neighbor, towards his spouse, towards his goods. Uh, And this commandment directly impacts two of the other commandments we've already heard. Uh, Where does God specifically not want these desires to be set? Um, On your neighbor's wife, right? That touches on the sin of adultery. We're also not to set our desire on the things that belong to our neighbor. That touches on uh, the commandment against stealing, you're not to set your desire on your, your neighbor's wife that is not your own. You're not to set your desires on your neighbor's house or his goods or his servants, those other things that are not your own. Uh, but really all the other commandments relating to our neighbors are, are contemplated here. We know that so often it's a desire for something that belongs to someone else that prompts the other sins that aren't directly implicated here. Uh, we can think of that in the life of King David, how His covetous desires for his neighbor's wife led to more than just violating the seventh and eighth commandments. It led to him bearing false witness against his neighbor, breaking the ninth commandment, murdering his neighbor, breaking the sixth commandment. And as he was God's authority to enforce justice, he broke the fifth commandment. Coveting is so often gives rise to all of these other sins. We've set our desires on things that don't belong to us, and they prompt us to engage in these other kinds of sins. Um, And when we covet something, we really desire it, and we let that desire drive what we do, we're showing that our hunger and thirst for the things that don't belong to us in that moment are greater than our hunger and thirst for righteousness. We'd rather have what belongs to someone else rather than the righteousness we know that is pleasing to the Lord. And the commandment clearly sets before us where our desires are to be located. 
Because even though this touches on sins against our neighbor, principally, our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's goods, we know that a state of the heart that is set like that also betrays something of our attitude towards our God. Right? Because if God is the good giver of every good and perfect gift, and he's given these things to other people, and we set our desires on the things that he has given to them that are not ours, um, we show not only that we have insufficient love towards our neighbor in the things that he has, but we show also that we have insufficient love towards our God who's given them to him. Um, and so we have to think about these things and think about the attitudes of our hearts. That's what coveting confronts us with. Uh, the catechism is helpful in, to us, saying this is not talking about every desire, as if desiring a house and a wife and goods and, and blessings in this life are somehow bad things in and of themselves. That's not what the commandment is saying. It's not saying it's wrong to want those things. It's saying it's wrong to want the things that belong to other people. Right? It's not wrong to desire a house. It's wrong to desire someone else's house. It's not wrong to desire a spouse. It's wrong to desire someone else's spouse. Uh, desires for these things in and of themselves are good, but when they're set on things that belong to others is when we've really transgressed that commandment because it exposes that attitude of our heart that wants to take what is something someone else's and make it our own. And even though, even though coveting itself is a kind of sin that touches on the heart, there are conditions of the heart still that are behind that sin. Uh, we shouldn't think that, you know, when murder deals with outward actions, then we have to think about what's the inward sin behind murder, that somehow because coveting is an inward sin, that there aren't sins behind that sin that dwell in the heart. Because so often, covetous desires are produced by jealousy and by discontent. Uh, we covet things because we are discontented with what we have, and we're jealous of what other people have. And if we think about it this way, that there are those kinds of sins that are in operation behind this sin of coveting. We really expose, it exposes to us the devilish nature of this sin. It really brings into sharp relief how much this is like the devil. Because doesn't really coveting lie at the heart of everything the devil's done? Um, why did the devil fall? Because he was discontented being an angel in heaven. He thought he needed to be the one in charge. He was discontented with the situation God had given him. He was jealous of what God had. And he attempted to take what was God's and make it his own. Right? That's, I think, what led to his rebellion that got him defeated and ejected from heaven, that he had tried to take what was the Lord's, and one of the results of his fall from his position in heaven was he continued to hate God, and he continued to covet what was God's, and having failed to get his glory, he said, well, well then I'll get those who bear the image of his glory. Um, he was discontent not having us. He was jealous that we belonged to God. And so he set about to try to take what belonged to God and make us his. He could not have God, so he tries to take his image bearers. And the sad thing was we were complicit um, in letting him do that, in taking away, uh, motivated by hatred. Everything he does is motivated by his hatred of God and his hatred of us. 
John Donne wrote a sonnet where there was kind of an arresting line. He said, and Satan hates me and is loath to lose me. He hates me and will not let me go. It was sort of like Captain Ahab. He hates the whale, but he won't let the whale go. Um, It's hatred that drives him on. The devil hates God and hates us. It drives everything he does. He's trying to take us, not because he loves us, not because he wants us, but because he hates us. And that's why the reality of the God we serve is so great. Because God is so committed to us because he loves us. Um, He loves us and would not let the devil take what belonged to him and make it his own. And it's love that drove God to do everything he did for us. That when we had been complicit in trying to make ourselves belong to the devil by our sins, God came and said, I will not allow it. Because I'm jealous for what belongs to me with a righteous kind of jealousy. I won't let someone else take what belongs to me because my people are my treasured possession. And I am discontented, God said, with this current state of affairs, with you trying to sell yourself into slavery. I'm jealous for you, and I'm discontented on your behalf. So you've tried to make friends. I'm going to drive a wedge into that. I'm going to create enmity between you. Um, And I'm going to send someone who will fully and finally destroy the devil. That's the heart that God has for us. Satan hates me and is loath to lose me. God loves me and will not let me go. That's the glorious good news of the God we serve. And that's why coveting, setting our hearts on evil, trying to take and make it our own, is a devilish kind of thing to do and the opposite of the heart of the God we serve. And that's why more and more we want these things to not dwell in our hearts. Uh, We want that kind of love that we see given by our God. Um, A love that has existed before the devil was created and a love that will continue on into eternity long after the devil is destroyed. Um, We want to have that kind of love. And so where should we set our desires? We should set our desires on the things that are true, on the things that are eternal, on the things that are lasting. So that our desires are not against the commandments that God has given or the temporary fleeting things of this world. Um, Where should we set our hearts and our desires? We should do what the Lord said in in Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Where should we set our desires on the righteousness of God? And that's the blessing that Jesus talks about. Who are the ones who are blessed, who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Not for things that don't belong to us and belong to other people, but righteousness. To be content with what God has given to us. And we see that that remedy of contentment being applied over and over again in scripture, I think a couple examples will suffice. But Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Right? When our eyes begin to wander to the things of this world and we set our, our desires on the things of this world, we're forgetting what we have in God. 
Why would you set your desire on money when you have a God who will never leave you or forsake you? Um, or think of what Paul says in Philippians four eleven through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, sometimes people look at that, those words and say, Paul's learned the secret. Do you want to know the secret? And then they go on as if there's some real secret. Paul's not making it a secret. He said, I've learned what the secret is to look to Christ. I have Christ. And regardless of whether I'm doing well or doing poorly, whether I'm hungry, whether I'm full, I have Christ. That's the secret to being content, to recognize that Christ and his righteousness and his kingdom is sufficient for us. And then we'll never look at the things that belong to our neighbor and say, I want those things, but we'll be able to look at the things that that our neighbor has and say, praise the Lord who's given them these things. Praise the Lord that they have them. If you look and they have a good house, you can say, praise the Lord that he's given them a good house or a good spouse or other goods of this world. Um, We can hunger and thirst for eternal things. It'll keep uh, us from hungering and thirsting after the things of this world that don't last. And if they become our idols and they become our goals, we'll eventually endanger even our own salvation. If we have Christ, what else do we need? Hunger and thirst for eternal righteousness, not temporary riches. That's the heart for the Lord that we are to have. Um, And after thinking about the Ten Commandments, the Heidelberg Catechism then says, okay, we've spent all this time thinking about them. What have we learned? As a teaching tool, it's it's a good teaching tool. It's always asking important questions. And question 114 is really asking that question. We've spent all all this time on these commandments. What use can we make of them? And it teaches us some very important things about our spiritual health at present. Um, It teaches us things about our health at present as Christians so that we properly understand the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in us. Um, After thinking about the catechism thinking through the law and thinking carefully about the law, isn't question 114 a very important question? But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? And it's an important question because the more we've looked at the law and more we've considered the law, the more we've thought about it, we've understood that the law touches on a lot more than, as we said, just outward actions. It asks us where are our motives in what we do. Right? Because our motives need to be gratitude to what God has done, glory, that we glorify God in what we do. We need to have the right motives when it comes to the law of God. The law has also told us we have to have the right attitudes towards these things, that there are no inclinations of our hearts or our thoughts that are contrary to the commandments of God. We have to have the right motives. We have to have the right attitudes. And then we need to produce the right actions, We need to produce righteousness in our words, in our gestures, in our deeds. Um, And the the question is really asking an important question for Christians. Having given all of this consideration to the law, seen how far it's reaching into motives and attitudes and actions, have we learned all of these things for the purpose of saying, now you need to perfectly do all of these things, and you can perfectly do all these things? Is the law telling us we can perfectly regulate our motives and perfectly regulate our attitudes and perfectly regulate our actions? 
That's an important question for Christians to be able to answer, isn't it? Is that what the law is asking of you? Um, is, that, is that what we can do? Right? That's a crucial question for you. And if you know the answer to question 114, it's a crucial question to be able to help other Christians ask. Um, because it touches on how do I understand my life? How do I understand my, my health as a Christian right now? Um, and there's two extremely important points that are made in the answer to this question. It's no. There's a certain comfort that ought to come to that for us. Not that we should be happy that that's the case. But it's a crucial truth that we need to understand as we move forward in our sanctification. Can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. That contains two very important perspectives to have on the Christian life. You cannot do it perfectly, but you do begin to do it. Right? The answer does not say, no, so give up. Right? No, you can just fold up your tent and go home. You don't need to listen anymore to the sermon. You just can't do it. So, But there's a really important distinction being made here. Can you do it perfectly? No. Do you begin Yes. That's a very important distinction, isn't it? I can't do it perfectly, but I do begin. I can't obey perfectly, but I make a beginning in the Christian life. And that should be an encouragement to us. If we couldn't make a beginning, then there are parts of the Bible that wouldn't make any sense. If we couldn't make a beginning in serving the Lord, then 1 John 2, 1 would make no sense. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That would be useless to us if we could not obey at all, if we were entirely powerless in the Holy Spirit. Um, John also says in 1 John 5, 2, and 3, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. You can't say that to people who are incapable of obedience. You can't say that to people who are incapable of any obedience. Right? That, that text would make no sense if we could do nothing. Um, we're called to obey. We're called to obey the Lord. Um, James is very clear about that. You can't say that you have faith and no works. Someone who has faith with no works, is, that faith is dead. Or Sinus makes the same point in his, in his commentary in the Catechism when he says, He that boasts that he knows and worships God without the beginning of obedience or sanctification is a liar. You can't know God and not begin. You can't do it perfectly, but you do begin. But the beginning we make, even of the holiest of people, is a small beginning when compared with perfection. Right. We can look at our lives and see spiritual progress, but if we compare that to where Jesus is in his life, we see how small our obedience actually is. We begin to obey, and that's a wonderful blessing, a, a divine work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we begin. But when we compare it to perfection, when we compare it to our Lord, we know we only have a small beginning, and we cannot attain perfection in this life. 
And to know that that's true, you don't need to look any further than two great titans of the faith. Think about David. And what does David, what does God say to us about David? He is the man after my own heart. Okay, none of us would dare say that about ourselves. The Lord says that about David. That's a wonderful testimony to who David is, right? Here is the man after my own heart, the sweet singer of Israel. And what does this man say? In Psalm 143, verse 2, he says to God, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. As great as David was in his, in his service to the Lord, he knows that he is not perfectly righteous. Um, think of Paul, another titan of the, of the faith, the Apostle Paul. What does he say? What does he make very clear to the Philippians in Philippians 3.12? Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I am not perfect, Paul says. Most pastors don't need to tell their congregation that, but Paul was so holy he needed to tell them, I'm not perfect. If David is not perfect and Paul is not perfect, if Paul is the kind of person who not only says I'm not perfect but says what he says in Romans 7, 18 and 19, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out, for I, the, I do not... For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Right? It should be clear to us if both David and Paul are saying, I'm not perfect, then there's no one here who should be saying, I'm perfect. Hopefully none of us would say that, but if you would say that about yourself, write this down right now. I am not perfect. I am not perfect. Um, we have not fully obeyed what God has done. The best of us make only a small beginning in this life. That's our health at present. So what do we do in response to that truth? Um, do we throw up our hands and say, are we now at the point of the sermon where we throw up our hands? It wasn't the time earlier, but have we now gotten to the time where we throw up our hands and say, okay, then I guess I can't do anything. Uh, no, the, the catechism is so helpful to us because it says now we have to understand our health at present, but what are we to do in response to that reality? Um, the question goes on to say, nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. And again, if we look to great saints like David and Paul, we learn from them how they respond to this reality. Right? Enter not into judgment with your servant, Lord, for no one in your sight is righteous. That's, that's what David understands. So does David throw up his hands? Does David not try? Does David not seek to please the Lord? No, he strives to please the Lord. He earnestly seeks to do the things that he knows are pleasing to the God that he loves. So he can also say in Psalm 18, 20 to 24, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. He's not saying I'm perfect. But what is his testimony here in Psalm 18? I strive to obey the Lord. 
I don't walk the paths of wickedness. I try to keep my hands clean. I try to keep his law before me. I walk in the things that he's called me to do. I'm not perfect, but I strive to be righteous. There's that seriousness of purpose we see in this great saint. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. Because out of gratitude to his God, seeking his glory, he strove to be holy. He engaged with seriousness of purpose to serve his God. And Paul did the same thing. Right, right after saying, I'm, I'm not perfect, I haven't already achieved these things, I haven't been made perfect, but what do I do? Paul goes on in Philippians 3, 12 to 14, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's language of seriousness of purpose, isn't it? I forget what lies behind. I press forward. I press on. That's seriousness of purpose that we see in the saints. And the reality that we only make a small beginning in this life should never be an excuse to not have the seriousness of purpose to seek to serve God, to not pursue righteousness, right? It's a, it's a caricature of the Reformed faith for people to say they, they're just all about forgiveness and not about holiness. That's not true, not if we're doing it right, not if we're listening to God's word, because he calls for both a trust in the forgiveness of God, but also effort being engaged in, in sanctification. I love what J.C. Ryle had to say in this regard, talking about something that John Owen had said 200 years before J.C. Ryle. So he's, gonna write, he's writing about John Owen, who was 200 years before him. We're about 200 years after J.C. Ryle. But I think what he's saying here is just as true in our day as when he said it, and when he said it's just as true as when John Owen said it. He said, that great divine John Owen used to say more than 200 years ago, so now more than 400 years ago, that there were people whose whole religion seemed to consist in going about complaining of their own corruptions and telling everyone that they could do nothing of themselves. I am afraid that after two centuries, the same thing might be said with truth of some of Christ's professing people in this day. I know there are texts in Scripture that which warrant such complaints. I do not object to them when they come from men who walk in the steps of the Apostle Paul and fight a good fight as he did against sin, the devil, and the world. But I never like such complaints when I see ground for suspecting, as I often do, that they are only a cloak to cover spiritual laziness and an excuse for spiritual sloth. If we say with Paul, O wretched man that I am, let us also be able to say with him, I press toward the mark. Let us not quote his example in one thing while we do not follow him in another. I think that's so true and so important that we, not, that we are honest about the fact that we can only make a small beginning even of the holy of us, but never let that be, as he says here, a cover for spiritual laziness or an excuse for spiritual sloth is a great word, um, right? It's like the sluggard in, in Proverbs who has, you know, his food on his plate, and he goes, oh, the food's on the plate, and I can't get it to my mouth. I guess I'm just going to go hungry. Um, we don't want to be spiritually like that. 
just to say, well, you know, wretched man that I am, so of course I'm a sinner. That's kind of how I carry myself. That's just, it's me. Okay, that's true, um, but are we straining forward towards holiness? Are we striving to do the things that God is calling us to do? Do we want to do those things because we know he loves them? Um, and we desire to, to show our gratitude to him. Both Paul and David would say, I'm not perfect. Um, but both Paul and David also said, I work hard to try to please the Lord. Because I love him, and I know he loves that. When we strive to do what's pleasing in his sight. And so our calling is to make sure that we understand our health at present is not perfection but also understand there should be a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in our lives. We should be desiring to put those things on. And when we see our own small beginning, it should not be a cover for spiritual laziness that we say, well, I'm a sinner, what can I do? Um, The Bible tells us what to do. Pray for forgiveness and strive for holiness. If there's, there needs to be both the prayer and the pursuit. We need to confess our sins and contest our sins, however you want to put it. Uh, we need to strive to be holy. And the law never lets us forget where we are. The law is given to us in part that we wouldn't find our hope for the future in ourselves. But question 114 is very important for helping us understand our spiritual reality, our spiritual health at present, And question 115 is helpful for giving us hope for the future. Um, This this proper understanding of our current state of health is what leads us into the question of 115. Can you keep this perfectly? No. Question 115 I really love because it's essentially asking, what are we spending all this time on the law for? If we can't do it, why have we been, if we can't do it perfectly, why have we been spending all this time on the law. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Um, As we think about our lives, the law is so important for us so that we don't ever be tempted to hope in ourselves. We're not ever tempted to hope in our own righteousness. Um, I think two difficulties in the Christian life is either we, we recognize our sinfulness and despair, or we don't recognize our sinfulness and get filled with pride. And so we, we come occasionally to God thinking we're doing pretty well, and then when life comes crashing down, we realize we're not doing very well, then we despair that, we, that we're not walking with God, and what do we do now? And the law is what helps keep that balance. The law is what helps us ever say, I think I'm doing pretty well. Because the law comes and says, where are your motives? Where are your attitudes? Where are your actions? You're not doing pretty well. You never stop needing Jesus. That's one of the great services the law does for, our, for us in our lives. It comes to me time and time again and says, you need Jesus. We sometimes talk that way, right? 
We, some, we used to joke when I was in college that we were nearby the Jerry Springer show, and there would be sometimes people who would go and sit in the audience because the college kids didn't have anything better to do. They let you be in the audience. And in, invariably, they got to a point where they would get some crazy person on stage, and someone in the audience would stand up and say, you know what? You all need Jesus. That's your problem, right? What the law does for every Christian is come to us repeatedly and say, you all need Jesus, You are not okay on your own. You will never stop needing forgiveness. And only Jesus can provide it to you. You will never stop needing the kind of righteousness the law is talking about. And you cannot find it on your own. You can only find it in the Lord. It constantly reminds us how far short our motives and our attitudes and our actions fall, how much we need Christ's forgiveness for our failings, how much we need his righteousness imputed to us in order to help us to hope to stand before God's tribunal of justice. We can never find any of that in ourselves. And the law keeps us from hoping in our own strength and reminds us that we will never stop needing God's grace in this life. We will never stop needing God's help in this life. The law does us a great service in reminding us of that. What it also does in driving us to Christ is reminds us that whenever we have something we need, God gives it to us. I never stop needing forgiveness. I never stop needing righteousness. I never stop needing grace. I never stop needing the help of the Holy Spirit. And what God reminds us is he never fails to meet a need. You need Christ, he gives him to you. You need his forgiveness, he gives it to you. You need his righteousness, he gives it to you. I'm going to go all the way through. You need his help, he gives it to you. You need his Holy Spirit, he gives it to you. God never fails to meet the needs that we have. When the law convicts us, we need help. What does God say? I will help you. I need more grace. The good news is he gives more grace. God always meets the needs that arise in us. Jesus comes to his disciples in our text, I haven't forgotten about it, and says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Where does that hunger come from? Where does that thirst come from? I don't by nature hunger and thirst for righteousness. But as a Christian, I do hunger and thirst for righteousness. Where does that come from? That comes from the Holy Spirit at work in me. God is wonderfully the God who creates the need and supplies what is needed. I love how the great theologian Gerhardus Voss put it. He said, he that gave the thirst likewise provides the water. And the one exactly meets the other. It is not the will of our Heavenly Father that any longing in our hearts, prompted by Himself, and therefore sincerely seeking Him, shall perish unsatisfied. I hunger and thirst for righteousness as a Christian. And the wonderful promise that Jesus gives is that hunger and that thirst will be satisfied. One of the interesting things that Voss does is goes to Revelation 6, 7.16 to complete this thought. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what is one of the blessings that's promised to us 
in the book of Revelation. They shall hunger no more, nor shall they thirst any more. Now, we usually use that to think about our physical wants and needs, but Voss says there's also another kind of hunger and thirst. We hunger in this life for righteousness, and we thirst for this life in this life for righteousness. And what does heaven promise? There'll be no more hungering for that anymore. There'll be no more thirsting for that anymore in heaven. And why will we neither hunger or thirst for righteousness there anymore? Because there we will be satisfied. We will be given the righteousness for which we hunger and thirst here below. It's beginning to be done in us by the Holy Spirit. We're receiving a down payment of that glory that will one day be ours, but there is a day coming when we will be perfect. I love that question 114 begins by saying you can't be perfect in this life. Um, And question 115 ends by saying you will reach the blessed goal of perfection after this life. That's what's coming for us. That's what God is doing for us in sanctification. And when will we be perfected? It's when we see him. When we see him, we will be like him. Voss again says... Through sanctification, Christ's holy character is impressed upon our souls so that notwithstanding our imperfections, God takes a true delight in us. Seeing that the inner man is changed from day to day after the likeness of Christ and the full meaning of our Lord's promise, we shall know in the last day when he shall satisfy himself in us by presenting us to God perfect in body, soul, and spirit Then shall come to pass the word that is written, they shall hunger no more and neither thirst any more, for we shall behold God's face in righteousness and be satisfied when we awake with his image. There is a day coming when we will be perfected, that the desire to be holy that we have in this life will be satisfied. And that's the blessing that Jesus promises even before he talks about the law in the Sermon on the Mount the blessing that he holds before his people's eyes, the blessing of what is coming to us. And it's that motivation, what we one day will be, that motivates us to, with seriousness of purpose, live for the Lord now. Hear how John does this in 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's the great future hope. And how do you respond when you have that hope? He goes on to say, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We pursue holiness because we hunger and thirst for that righteousness coming one day. And so when we pursue holiness, we're really just pursuing what we one day will be. We're practicing to be saints in glory. And we do so in that great hope that one day this desire to be righteous will be satisfied. The desire to be righteous will be fulfilled. And when we see Jesus, we will be like him. And so let us live in the hope that Psalm 1715 offers us. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. May God speed that day. Amen. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you are the God who creates the thirst and provides the water, that you work in us by your spirit that we might desire holiness and that we might pursue it. Lord, we pray that our own recognition of our small beginnings of holiness would never prompt in us any kind of spiritual laziness or an excuse for spiritual sloth, that we would confront that reality so that we might always cling to Christ, but that we might with seriousness of purpose seek to live not to earn something from your hand, but because of what we've been given in Christ, that out of gratitude for all that you've done for us, we would seek to live in ways that are pleasing to you. So help us to set our hearts on those things and give us the help of your Holy Spirit that we might never stop striving to please you in this life, knowing that one day we will be perfected and the desires of our hearts will be satisfied. Speed that day, we pray, and keep us faithful until that day comes. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.